Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast in which, contrary to conventional wisdom, revenge is a dish best served piping hot. In today's episode, James and I will be talking about such charming topics as human sacrifice, dismemberment, insanity, cannibalism, and whether this play should really be called the Titus Chainsaw Massacre. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Bardflies, Episode 6. A bloody thing happened on the way to the forum. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. James, give me a little bit of uh, a sense of the, the background and plot summary on this one, which is, I will note, extremely, extremely violent. Trigger warning. Uh, which will be the subject of much discussion as we go on. Unlike most of Shakespeare's uh, Roman plays, this is not based in real history. This is a fictionalized story. But Titus Andronicus, greatest general of the Roman Empire, returns to Rome after a lengthy and victorious war against the Goths. In his train are a number of hostages, among whom are Tamara, the queen of the Goths, her three sons, Alarbus, Chiron, and Demetrius, and her secret lover, Aaron the Moor. Moor, of course, meaning a Moorish or African person. Titus starts things off on the right foot when he arrives in Rome by offering Alarbus, again, that's Tamara's eldest son, to the gods a human sacrifice to give thanks for his victory. <laughs> of course, Will, that's, this has to be done in the most gruesome possible way, and I quote from the play, Alarbus's limbs are lopped, and entrails feed the sacrificing fire whose smoke like incense doth perfume the sky. Tamara, so murder, murder and mutilation. <laughs> murder and mutilation from page one. Tamara and her sons are, quite understandably, in my opinion, uh, not very happy about this, and they swear revenge on Titus and on his entire family. This will be important later. All is not well in Rome. Two brothers, Saturninus and Basianus, are vying to replace their dead father as the new emperor. Titus, however, the victorious general, is the choice of the people, but he doesn't desire the crown for himself. Hoping to avert bloodshed, a very misplaced hope, he endorses Saturninus, and Saturninus and Titus also agree that Saturninus will marry Lavinia, Titus's daughter. Before this union can take place, however, Basianus, supported by Titus's four sons, seizes Lavinia, claiming that she is his betrothed. Titus, in a fit of rage, kills his son Mutius, <coughs> while Basianus and Lavinia flee. Saturninus is embittered against Titus, who he feels has embarrassed him, and he marries Tamara to Titus's dismay. The next day, there's a royal hunt during which Aaron the Moor, again, who is Tamara's secret lover, sets in motion the plan to destroy Titus and his family. He convinces Tamara's remaining sons, Chiron and Demetrius, to kill Basianus and rape Lavinia. <coughs> when they drag Lavinia into the forest, Aaron places a bag of gold near Basianus's body and leads Martius and Quintius, two of Titus's remaining sons, to the site. There, they are all discovered by Saturninus, who accuses them of the murder and sentences them to death. Aaron tricks Titus into cutting off his own hand by telling him that Saturninus will spare the lives of Martius and Quintus if he does so, and then he sends a messenger back to Titus with his hand and the heads of his sons. <coughs> Titus's brother Marcus finds Lavinia. Chiron and Demetrius have cut out her tongue and cut off her hands, thinking that they will thereby prevent her from revealing who raped her. Because they're idiots, this doesn't work. Lavinia reveals the truth by writing their names in the dirt with a stick. A vengeful Titus sends his fourth and final son, Lucius, to raise an army amongst his erstwhile Gothic enemies and march on Rome. 
Shortly thereafter, Aaron also flees the city when Tamara gives birth to his mixed-race son, but not before killing the nurse who brought him the child. <coughs> Aaron is picked up by Lucius's army as it approaches Rome. Hoping to save his son's life, Aaron reveals the details of his plot with Tamara to Lucius. By a set of plot machinations much too annoying to describe, Titus imprisons Chiron and Demetrius and invites Saturninus, Tamara, and Lucius to a feast at his house, allegedly for a feast of reconciliation. Instead, dressed as a cook, he presents them with a meat pie. Will, can you guess where Titus got the meat for this meat pie? I'm guessing it is not from a beast of the field, but for somebody that walks around on two legs and maybe one of You're Tamar's correct, sons. Will. It is Chiron and Demetrius, <laughs> is the detained sons of Tamara. Uh, things quickly spiral out of control. Titus kills Lavinia. I don't really understand why, but he does. Then he kills Tamara. Saturninus kills Titus. <laughs> Lucius kills Saturninus. <laughs> and Lucius then becomes emperor. And just to really leave the whole thing on a charming note, Lucius's first act as the new emperor of Rome is to decree that Aaron should be buried alive. <laughs> Aaron, of course, is completely unrepentant and goes to his grave saying of his evil deeds, 10,000 worse than ever yet I did would I perform if I might have my will. There's also a clown that's hanged by Saturninus at some point for good measure just to increase the body count a little bit more. So, uh, James, let me just run through that for a second. I've been keeping track here. It looks like 14 murders, uh, one rape, of course, then four to however many instances of mutilation and one incident of cannibalism. Does that about sum this play up? That, uh, that sounds about right. And don't forget as well, there are a few deaths that are implied uh, for instance, there's Aaron kills the wet nurse who brings in the baby, but then he also orders that one other nurse or servant character who knows about the birth be killed. That's not shown on stage or reported to us, but we have to assume that that, that character dies as well. And of course, there's the scene where Titus kills the fly. So we might add that to the body count as well. Okay, so... Obviously, that's a that's a lot of bloodshed. I think one of the things that, to take a step back here, that I think is kind of bizarre and fascinating about this one, are we meant to actually feel bad for anyone in this play? Is anyone the hero? Because people are killing each other at the slightest provocation. At least when I read it, I didn't understand exactly why certain people had to die yeah, when I they died. Yeah, I agree with you, and I, this, I, was, I was sort of trying to figure out how to make sense of the play, because it doesn't feel like there's a real protagonist. You know, we talked in one of our recent podcasts, Will, about the idea of tragedy being, or rather I should say you mentioned that sort of Aristotelian idea of tragedy as being about two opposed rights. And this play instead feels like it's a tragedy of opposed wrongs. Uh, everyone's killing each other. Everyone seems to have either no motive or bad motives for why they're behaving the way that they do. You know, from the very beginning, you see Titus offering as a human sacrifice a Larbus, which isn't a great look, and then things sort of spiral out of control from there. If there is anyone that you're meant to feel bad for, and I think you have to feel bad for, of course it's Lavinia, who's subjected to a fate that is particularly gruesome. But outside of that, I, I don't really see anyone in this play that feels really redeeming in any way. Uh, do you agree with that, or do you think there's sympathy for Titus to be found here, or for anyone else? So it's like the play is so grotesque, it's kind of hard to really... Like Titus, there is a period in the play where Titus is just getting like a raw deal 
all the way through. You know, he chops off his hand. He's sort of deceived into doing that by Aaron, who's this evil trickster figure. You know, his sons both get beheaded, even though he thinks he's dealing in good faith. His daughter has been, you know, raped and horrendously mutilated. So I feel like you're supposed to feel for Titus, but he kills his son at the drop of a hat in the beginning of the play. And then he goes on and he sort of isn't driven insane. It seems like by what happens to him, but then Mm -hmm. he's actually much more cold blooded and calculating about getting his revenge at the end of the play. And in fact, he feigns insanity when dealing with Tamora and her sons later in the play. So he can like get the sons alone and have them murdered and then baked into the meat pie. Yeah. That scene felt to me like it was a bit of strained plotting to get, Chiron and Demetrius into his clutches, you know, it didn't, uh, maybe I'm not being generous enough to Shakespeare in that reading, but, uh, but it's, it's also clear that he's feigning insanity, isn't it? I'm right. He says, or, or maybe it's in an aside or something, but it, I feel like he does basically say to the audience that he realizes that it's the Tamara, Chiron and Demetrius are Tamara, Chiron and Demetrius, but in disguise. And he is tricking them into thinking that he doesn't realize yeah i mean the there's an earlier scene where titus kills a fly after it's it's sort of by by a sort of crazy turn of events he and his brother marcus are talking and and he kills this fly right after being told that the fly is black like aaron the moor so take them for that you will but um (laughs) about the racial about the racial dimension of this play but basically um that marked a point where i thought titus had legitimately gone insane like at first he was saying to Marcus, why did you, why did you stab at the fly on the table? You know, you shouldn't be trying to kill innocent creatures. And then like he stabs the fly later and has this contrived monologue. And it just seems like Titus at some points is supposed to have just completely lost it and is supposed to be out of his mind. Cheese slid off the cracker, completely nuts. Uh, A few tacos short of a combination plate, what have you. He's just completely bananas. And then at this later point... And do you think, Will, that that is really what's behind the the cannibalism aspect of it? Do you think that it's not premeditated? No, I do think it's premeditated. I think it's like a weird aspect of the way the play is written. And it's sort of maybe a failing of Shakespeare's that you go from seeing... Titus in a genuine, what appears to me to be a genuine fit of insanity when he's around his family, to then this cold-blooded, methodical plotter who brings about a pretty gruesome revenge that relies on like a lot of plot machinations that are pretty, as you said, pretty like cumbrous and ridiculous and tenuous to accomplish his goal. And he seems like perfectly, he has his faculties, let's put it that way. He might be nuts, but it's not the act of somebody who's disordered and out of touch with reality, you know? It's like he's got Mm -hmm. good reason to kill these people and to, you know, do terrible things to them. So, you know, that that is sort of what what I'm going for here is like, it seems like how you're supposed to take what's going on in Titus and in all the other characters' motivations is like not entirely clear for good portions of the play. I guess like one of the one of the things in reading a little bit about the background of this play was was actually pretty popular in Shakespeare's day. You know, it, it sold well, and people knew Shakespeare as the author of Titus at least in his early career. And it fits into this sort of like genre of revenge play that was fairly common and well liked by theater goers in the Elizabethan period. And I guess like what I'm kind of interested about here is, I do not think this play is a success, but. Maybe that's I agree. Be- maybe that yeah, and maybe that's because I'm judging it as a tragedy in the sense of like Macbeth 
you know, maybe I'm holding it to this like artificial standard that it is not actually trying to achieve. Maybe this is more like a B movie just designed to like get butts in seats and entertain people. And in that case, I don't know how to assess whether it's good at that or not. Does it accomplish its aims? And how do you, how do you think about that? Well, can we take a little step back in addressing this question and just, so this is our first tragedy. I mean, yes, arguably, I suppose the Henry VI plays are tragic, but they're not tragedies in the classic Shakespearean sense, right? So I think, Will, as a way of addressing this question, I'd be interested in sort of talking about a line from the earlier plays to this one. And sorry, I, I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, this is his first time working in this form, right, where it feels like the intentionality is different. The Henry VI plays, while obviously they portray not as bloody, but similarly bloody and depressing and dark happenings. And while there is a similar kind of type of misanthropy in the two comedies we've read so far, right? This is the first time that he's working in this directly tragic mold, right? So I guess all of that is a long way of saying in response to your question that I feel like what's happening here is he doesn't know how to write this type of play yet. To me, it feels like he's leaning on, you know, if we can if we can go to movie conventions, right, he's mo- he's leaning on torture porn or gore fest slasher tropes, you know, that we see in a lot of not very good horror movies that are sort of showing thing, you know, showing people thrills that, you know, that they can't get elsewhere and showing them things they haven't seen before, but it's achieving it in a cheap way. It's not doing the work of creating real gripping human drama it's doing it by titillation yes that that makes sense yeah that makes sense to me i guess the the thing that i sort of think about is like there's enough jokiness i know that what we've just described sounds like this horrifying bloodbath which it is but there's a lot of punning in this and there's a lot of efforts to be funny and to play a lot of these scenes for laughs i mean aaron the moor is almost a comically evil character you know i i don't know if uh he would have had a mustache in this particular era but you yeah can, he does you can see it. he does seem like he's someone who's sort of twirling his mustache i think that's exactly that's a great way of describing it he's like a very very stereotypical villain right and he has these jokes you know where he's talking to um to Mora's sons and he references to you know, in a in a series of not particularly clever, but definitely intentional wordplay, he is making basically uh, jokes about having villain. Having, I have done thy mother. I have done thy mother. Yes, you know, it, it's a, you have undone our mother. No, I have done thy mother. You know, things along those lines where it's like, it's clear that it's being played for laughs, and then Titus himself has all of these. It's almost like uh, he has all of these puns on hands right before he loses his hands, after his daughter loses his hands. It's almost played up to the point of kind of like for laughs. And I I almost felt like it more and more kinship to um, when... Uh, when in Arrested Development, Buster ends up losing his hand <laughs> uh, when it gets bit off by a seal in, oh, uh, right. you know, off the coast, and it becomes fodder for just endless jokes. So there's a, a piece of this that sits as a very um, uncomfortable comedy in the midst of all of the bloodbath. So part of me wonders if this is just really not even truly intended as a tragedy. Like we talk about it as a tragedy, but it actually might be conforming to a different type of convention or sort 
sort of uh, intention as a as a play altogether, which is probably well. That's that's interesting, Will. So let's right. I think so. Can we talk a little bit about tragedy and horror? Yeah, let's I, I do think because so I generally going you know sort of going further down the horror route. I watch a lot of movies and I don't watch that many horror movies for kind of all the reasons that I was talking about with regard to this play before that I feel like often horror movies are achieving a cheap thrill and not telling compelling dramatic stories. That said, there are some horror movies that are absolute masterpieces that I love. You know, Alien, for instance, is one of my favorite movies. And it's interesting to me to think about what makes those movies successful or like what can a really good horror movie do that other movies can't do, which to me is address, you know, these very primal human instinctual emotions of fear and disgust. You know, it's it's about deeper or maybe not deeper, but sort of uh less it's not about civil problems right it's about literally the direct threats to human life and like what that inspires in us so sorry i'm not being super articulate about this but i I don't see this movie doing those things yeah no I, i i hear you there it's interesting because there are some horror movies right like night of the living dead for instance, which I think goes beyond just the traditional jump out of your seat, scare you movie. And it's a little bit of social commentary. You know, there's just sort of like racial subtext in that the hero of Night of the Living Dead is black and, you know, it's all these other people in sort of rural America staggering after him. And it's also a little commentary on like conformity versus nonconformity. But the idea that horror can achieve uh, really potent effects in the audience, that that I can definitely buy, whether it's partial social commentary or just commentary on things that scare us and produce a deep sense of like revulsion and fear. So yeah, I, I can totally I can totally see that. To me, this seems more like the B movie version of horror, and I wonder if it's it's just not all that successful because. People just, just purely audience titillation, right? Like the, people just die, like one after the other. So in the in the feast scene where Tamora is being fed her sons, Titus asks Saturninus using a sort of allusion to Greek mythology or Roman mythology, I suppose. Basically, he's like, well, what happened to this one mythical character when his daughter was raped? Did he kill his daughter? And Saturninus says, yeah, he killed his daughter. So Titus kills his daughter. Saturninus says. Why did you just do that? Titus says, well, you know, that that happened. And it leads to this confrontation where it's revealed that Tamora's sons raped Lavinia. And then it's revealed, right, that uh, Tamora is eating her sons. And then just multiple more stabbings occur within a, like a two-page span, right? And, um, and I guess the point of that is it's not like these people are people, right? Or, or even fully fleshed out characters. It's purely meant to be oh man, like three people just got stabbed in almost brutal, it's almost slapstick. Yeah, it's just like, let's look at the rivers of blood on the stage. Right, right. And so to me, that it's like pure titillation as you're, the way you put it, it like makes complete sense to me. And, you know, in that sense, that almost limits its ability to be a great work of art. Though I, I would argue it probably isn't quite intended to be in that sense. I think there's almost too much of a jokiness to it. But um, yeah, I, I see what you mean. And, and it could fall into that category of films or works of art that we sort of valorize a little bit more now because they're culty, you know, and 
people love them despite knowing that they're kind of trashy. Yeah, there's like a schlockiness to it, right? So yeah, I, I completely, completely. Do agree. you will? Do you do you think there is a sensibility to the play or or you know a reading of it that could not? I don't want to say that would make it successful, but do you think that there is a a coherent reading of the play? I guess. Yeah, I I feel like. So honestly, probably not, though I would say one thing that, that kind of interests me about this one and, and could add some resonance to it is that you could read this as a tale of debauchery and civil strife and decadence run amok among your ruling elite, which is sort of addressed at the end. There's a Roman lord who's present at the dinner, and this is right before Lucius is uh, crowned emperor where he's basically talking about how things have really gotten out of hand and we need to really reset mm-hmm. on this horrible internecine strife. So there's a way in which you can read it as just the complete descent into insanity and bloodshed. And I think if you're primed for that as an audience member, this might have a different type of resonance. I mean, This play was... Loved in Shakespeare's time when violence was pretty common, not just in the sense of like right. wars, but people being burned at the stake and, you know, sort of judicial torture and religious conflict and all of that. And then yeah. Yeah. actually, I think I think that's notable because, I, you know, the closest thing that I could come to figuring out any way in which maybe you could read the play as coherent was to suggest that the play is sort of about... You know, it is is about how we like to to set up our own societies as the most enlightened and the most correct, when in fact all human societies are corrupt and horrible. And I, I will say, well, I, I think where, where I do see a consistency to it is more in a sensibility that connects it with the other plays, which mm. is the pessimism we've talked about mm-hmm. in the past. I, I like. I feel like this is going further towards that idea that we saw, particularly in the Henry the Sixth plays, but I think a little bit now looking back also in those first two comedies of real cynicism and pessimism about people's behavior and people's tendencies. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing that strikes me about that is even though Rome claims to have this privileged place in civilization, who does Titus turn to to regain power? The Goths. Mm-hmm. whose queen is now basically empress of Rome. He sends his son out to raise an army among the Goths. So there's a certain degree of cynicism, even about the ideals of civilization in general. It's like you might have this sort of barbar- barbarous group or group of barbarians that you just defeated in war. But at the end of the day, people are willing to go with expediency and flip in the slightest, uh, yeah. for the slightest reason and revenge murder, greed, those are things that are actually motivating people in this play throughout. And, and it's it's notable that, right, so one of the first things that we see in the play is Titus sacrificing Alarbus. <laughs> and the reaction to this is Chiron, who is Tamara's son, who, lest we forget, will shortly hereafter rape Lavinia, cut out her tongue, and cut off her hands, says of Titus and Titus's sacrifice of Alarbus was never Scythia half so barbarous, i.e. as Rome. <laughs> right? So it's not hard to see the flaws in another society, but maybe it is pretty hard to see the flaws in oneself. Yeah, and I think, you know, to go back to what the audience brings to the play might change your reading or understanding of it. I think in the Victorian era, there was, this play fell 
like out of favor uh, and probably in the Georgian, like the late Georgian period too, just the idea of uh, sort of bourgeois morality and the idea of civilization and trying to follow certain norms. This play saw a revival starting in the 1920s, which I don't think is entirely accidental. And there's been a lot more stagings of it in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, including... um, Brian Cox, Lawrence Olivier, and then in Julie Taymor's film, you have um, Anthony Hopkins playing Titus. And what Taymor has said about it, I haven't watched the movie, but you know, I read an interview with her where she was basically saying that the bloodshed in this play, coming sort of at the tail end of the 90s, when you're looking at um, Rwa- the Rwandan genocide and Srebrenica and what happened in the Yugoslav wars and the ethnic cleansing and and genocide that was occurring there, you know, you have ample room to draw on in terms of people being barbarous to one another and it provoking these these blood feuds. Now, obviously, those episodes, historical moments are pretty complicated and, you know, sort of beyond my ability to dissect on this podcast. But it makes sense to me that in the 20th century, in the wake of world wars, the Holocaust, various other genocides that you could end up. Yeah, with I mean, this you will. I mean, I think you really hit hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that it started to sort of revive in the 1920s, which obviously was in the wake of the most horrifying war in the history of the world, right? You know, no, I don't mean in terms of. I, I guess I mean in terms of like specifically the horror of being on the battlefield mm. in World War One, right, in trench warfare and that loss of life that was, you know, where no one really understood why they were fighting and hundreds of thousands of people were getting killed on a daily, you know, within a matter of minutes, right, or hours. Yeah, I mean, the senseless... The senseless killing, or at least that's the representation of what happens in Titus, even though they have motives and so forth, uh, the way in which the revenge is conducted the reasons or pretexts under which people are being killed is pretty pretty thin and pretty horrifying. But I, I even with that though, I don't know that the play really works. And and this is because of the jokiness and schlock that seems baked in and seems intentional in the play. Particularly all the, you know, look no hands kind of jokes and all of that stuff. So if you wanted to horrify people by mindless slaughter, at some point it's got a reflect back on the audience and make the audience uncomfortable in some way. And I'm not sure that that's the way that the audience would have taken this. I mean, I can't, you know, obviously project backward and and get into the mind of a, you know, Elizabethan Englishman going to this play. But I think... Well, I'm, yeah, but yeah. Well, I, that's true. But we can certainly speak to our own reaction yeah. to it, right, Will? And, and my reaction to it, reading it, was certainly like, why is any of this happening? Right. 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 What is nothing that happens feels particularly motivated from beginning to end. And, and like, sure, I guess, yes, the there's Titus sacrificing Alarbus to the gods. And I guess you could say, well, that's about, you know, the barbarism of Roman society. And of course, then Tamara and her sons are going to want to take revenge on Titus. Sure. But so much of the other killing in the play doesn't really have any yeah significance or meaning in kind of the grand scheme of things or it's or it's done in a disproportionate way that seems completely unbalanced and grotesque compared to well, what is happening I mean just you know? right for instance there's a scene the scene where Basianus is killed and then Chiron and Demetrius sort of make off with 
Lavinia. There's this whole exchange between Lavinia and Tamara where Lavinia is begging Tamara to prevent her sons from basically raping and mutilating her. And, you know, it's, I, I don't know really even how to describe it. It's grotesque, to use the word that you used, but it's it's beyond any sort of scale of what you would expect, I guess. I, I, I realize this, I don't think I'm articulating this very well, but... So, yeah. So, so, just to, like, take a step back there, though, I think this is an interesting comparison, and I think I've maybe mentioned this uh, comparison before, but when I was growing up with my guy friends, we might, like, watch, you know, Goodfellas or American Psycho or even, like, Silence of the Lambs or, serial, you know, serial killer movies, whatever, what have you, right? There's a way of reading the best of those films or watching the best of those films and recognizing that they are saying something, right? That there is some mm-hmm. sort of higher intention there. There's also a way of watching even the best of them at a very surface level. Like American Psycho is a great example. You know, that that movie, if you watch it and sort of understand, you know, you're actually thinking about what you're seeing, it's kind of an indictment of decadence and misogyny and, and so forth, right? And kind of the male... Yeah, there's a highly satirical component to right it. there's also a way of watching it where you're 16 you know or 15 and it's just like christian bale killing people and it's like in- insane and highly titillating and uh you know and i think like that's one example you could also just say far at the other end of the spectrum some random serial killer movie where it's about watching or even like a movie like hostile right true torture porn where it's just straight up about the, or saw, right? Like grotesque punishments that are carried out on people. Mm -hmm. And part of it's the preparation and the elaborate nature of the revenge. And I think people enjoy that and get off on it in in both in movie theaters and probably in playhouses. So there's a question of at what point do you turn it back on the audience and force them to examine their own bloodlust? I'm not sure that you quite get that in this play or not, you know, and that and that's the that's sort of what I meant when trying to understand how somebody who lives in a society where corporal punishment and public executions and war and just brawling in taverns is a pretty common occurrence. I wonder how it reads to them. You know, is it just sort of an exaggerated version of the stuff they see every day? Uh, is it seen as a spirited indictment of kind of their own social mores and shortcomings? That's the part that I am really curious about because I lean towards seeing this play as just pure titillation. And if you stage it in the right way, you can get this deeper moral meaning about the barbarism of people in general and you know you strip away all the pretense and it's really about the dark desires that people have to hurt one another but that's a different you know that that involves i think more intentionality or sort of work than the text naturally provides i completely agree and i think i'll put it this way i think i think there are hints of something that shakespeare is trying to do and that what that's what i was trying to get at with this question of is it about the general barbarism of human nature but even if that is what he's trying to do, it's not successful. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So this sort of leads naturally into our our power ranking of the play. And we can just rank it vis-a-vis the other plays can, we've read. But before, before we get to that, Will, can I... I wanted to ask you one other question, which is... And this is something that just popped into my head as, as mm-hmm. we've been talking. What kind of linkage do you see between Richard Plantagenet of Henry VI, parts two and three 
with Aaron because they strike me as somewhat similar characters, at least in the way that Shakespeare treats them. And yet Aaron, the more for all that he's easily the most entertaining character in the play, just for how villainous he is, doesn't to me have any or not any, but doesn't have nearly the same real psychology that I feel like we get with Richard Plantagenet. Yeah. And I was sort of interested to to hear your take on that. Yeah, and I think part of that is Richard wants political power, and Richard is sort of taking a way of thinking about politics, the sort of Machiavellianism and amoral reality. Like, it, it makes it's kind of crazy to even call it realpolitik because it goes so far beyond that. It's beyond you know what Machiavelli would have said. But the idea basically is that I think Richard. One, I think he conceals his motives uh, much more deftly than Aaron. He's also operating in a society where many people want power and are somewhat skilled at maneuvering. But I think that you know what sets Richard apart is um, you know he embodies almost a philosophy and way of looking at the world, not just the desire to be evil, which is pretty much yeah. What and I, and said. I guess you also can see with Richard, you know, I wonder if some of why he comes across as a more complete character is because we've also lived in that world for mm. a while before he's ever introduced. And so you can see his ethos as coming out of the extremity of the situation that he's in or, or drawing it to a conclusion that makes, you know, that is horrible, but you can see a logic to how he gets there. Yeah, he's like an extension of that world and a world in, you know, in those plays in the Henry VI trilogy the violence is treated in a much more realistic way for the most part, right? Right. And he is sort of an extension of that world and our world in a way that I think is more readily apparent. People rarely stride onto the stage and directly proclaim themselves to be a villain. Even Richard Plantagenet, Richard III, when he comes out, he says, I'm perceived as a villain. I don't consider myself to be a villain. I am not following the conventional morality of society, but here's why, essentially. Aaron comes out under the stage basically saying, I'm evil. <laughs> I, yeah. I want, you know, I want nothing more than to debase and destroy and to, to yeah, well, you know, do whatever again, I want, right? It's know? the 10,000 worse deeds than ever yet I did what I perform if I might have my will, right? There's no subtlety about it. Yeah, I mean, we're whereas Richard Plantagenet, and I think it's in Richard III, he says this, but it might have been earlier, where he says, uh, since I must prove a villain, you know, it's, it's because... He, he recognizes the difference between actually being the mustache-twirling villain and being the guy who's doing things that other people consider immoral, but that he himself does not necessarily recognize as immoral in the same way. Anyway, I, I, there's a lot more gray, I think, in Richard's personality, psychology, and the world he emerges from, as you put it earlier, than Aaron, right. who basically yeah. is just like instrumental to making bad stuff happen in this play, and that's hit the entire... Well, that's what's strange is... I don't really know if this character even really needs to exist, honestly. I, I mean, like, other than planting the gold at the beginning of the play in order to frame Martius and Quintus, I don't really know why he needs to be in this play. So really, uh, again, with the pessimistic indictment, is it simply because nobody else in this play is smart enough to <laughs> actually figure out what's going on and carry it out credibly? Because those sons of, of Demoras are pretty stupid. Let's be let's be real, you know? It's like, yeah, I, I mean, caught. I'm not even it doesn't even feel like they're in on the plot. 
Right. right, right. They're basically just told to do this thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, it sounds great. You know, they're sort of, they're like, oh, Lavinia, like she's, you know, like definitely, definitely want her. And then, uh, you know, Aaron sort of hears this and says, oh, well, here's how we actually can accomplish things that yeah, we all want. I mean, I wonder, I guess what occurs to me is that maybe, you know, maybe in writing the play, Shakespeare needs a real villain or he wants to have a real villain in the play. As opposed to, right, like Tamara and her sons, like, behave really, really badly. But mm-hmm. since he's starting the playoff with Titus offering their son and brother as a human sacrifice to the gods of Rome, like, th- there's maybe a little bit of gray area there. But, you know, given that he turns the uh, the two brothers into rapists and Tamara into an accomplice to rape, I don't know that that's, like, really needed. Yeah, I think you're I think you're probably right. He does get some he does get the best lines in the play though. There's no question about that. You know. Yeah. This guy gets to ham it up in a in a very literal uh sense, I suppose. Anyway. Uh, on that note, Will, can I share my favorite passage here? <laughs> yes, please, Just please do. Because it fits very much in the Aaron mold. This is uh Aaron speaking to Lucius in Act Five, Scene One, and basically he's talking about having been caught and now being sentenced to death, and Lucius has I think just asked him if, uh, yes, Lucius has just asked him, art thou not sorry for these heinous deeds, i.e. the deeds that Aaron has performed over the course of the play? Art thou not sorry for these heinous deeds? Aye. But I'd not done a thousand more. Even now, I curse the day. And yet I think few come within the compass of my curse, wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man, or else devise his death. Rather shamed or plot the way to do it. Accuse some innocent and forswear myself. Make poor men's cattle break their necks. Set fire on barns and haystacks in the night and bid the owners quench them with their tears. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves and set them upright at their dear friends' doors, even when their sorrows almost was forgotten. And on their skins, as on the barks of trees, have with my knife carved in Roman letters. Let not my sorrow die, though I am dead. I have done a thousand dreadful things as willingly as one would kill a fly. And nothing grieves me heartily indeed that I cannot do 10,000 more. So this was a, this actually, I've, I've been looking at um, Mark Van Doren's book on Shakespeare, which will be in the show notes. And he quotes that passage, James. And then this is his concluding paragraph, which I think is, is sort of a brilliant take on that passage and the play as a whole. The direction is from murder and rape to Halloween pranks. And the tendency is that of a clock weight down. Was Shakespeare sporting with his puppet, giving it a final jerk to prove it merely wood and wool? We shall never be able to answer the question, for we shall never know Shakespeare. But that this is anticlimax, and that this is parody of some sort in the extreme degree, we can be as certain as we are that Titus Andronicus is Shakespeare's one unfeeling tragedy. Which I think is a brilliant summation for a bunch of the things we've been talking about. So, Agreed. At any rate, I wanted to go through our power rankings. Uh, did you like this play? Where does this play stack up 
in the context. I did not like this play, as you can doubtless tell from our conversation so far. I think to me, I would still place it above The Taming of the Shrew. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it might even be below The Two Gentlemen of Verona for me, which would place it basically as the second to last in our rankings for me. So it would go the Henry the Sixth plays the Two Gentlemen of Verona, Titus Andronicus, Taming of the Shrew. Okay, so uh, and this may be slightly amending my previous listing, but here's where I would put it. I would say, in terms of from good to bad, Henry the Sixth, two, one, three, followed by I guess I would say Taming of the Shrew, then Titus, then Two Gentlemen of Verona. Oh, that I don't know. I, I'm not comfortable. Just to with that make ranking. you feel good, right? Yeah, just to make you feel good. That's a that that is a very heavy uh, bottom half of the plays we've read so far. But that being said, you know I have I have great hope because our next play will be. I think it's uh, Richard the Third. Our next play is Richard the Third, which by most accounts is the great young masterpiece of Shakespeare. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that one. Um, well, any anything else? Yeah, actually, one one final thing. So James, if you were to make this play into a film today, who would you either cast in it or ask to direct? And is there basically any way of making this this work salvageable? Uh, so casting corner. I'll say, first of all, I feel like the, I, I think the writing in this play or the characterizations really are much, are, are probably honestly the weakest of any of the plays we've read so far. You know, there's, the, the only thing that leaps out to me is I think I would go with Idris Elba to play Aaron the Moor. But, you know, these these characterizations are pretty flat and uninteresting, I think. And, you know, and, and there's there's not enough that's distinctive in most of these characters to for me to really be able to say like, oh, you know, who would be great in that role is X. I, I think Aaron, Idris Elba as Aaron the Moor, Aaron the Moor is the only one that I can, that I sort of enjoy reading. And I can definitely imagine a very hammy and aggressive performance a la, for instance, Fast and Furious Idris Elba in this movie. So you're, you know, and, and I would, I would love to see the Ridley Scott version of this movie i.e. the ridley scott really leaning into gorgeous tableaus and aggressive bloodshed and like doing the you know leaning into that b now obviously ridley scott is not usually a b-movie director but he is i think the greatest probably one of the great shot makers we have right now and you know to elevate this this text you really need a great visualist and ridley scott obviously did direct alien um, one of the great horror movies, one of my favorite movies. And so I'd, I'd be interested to see what he could do with this. But I do think you have to lean into the, you know, the bloodshed and, and sort of doing it as a aggressive horror. Yeah, that, that sounds spot on. You know, as long as it's uh, Idris Elba channeling his performance in Cats, I think we would all be, <laughs> we would all be overjoyed to see him as Aaron the Moor. Will, anything you're reading that you want to recommend as we're closing out here? I am reading the novels of Ross McDonald, uh, who is a somewhat forgotten uh, noir writer in the 1960s. And... They're actually tremendous. They're very funny. It's a slightly warmer Raymond Chandler, and it's a portrait of California in the early 60s before the summer of love. It's really more the part of the 60s that's more like the 50s. And um, I'm enjoying them tremendously. There's great wit in them and great social commentary. 
What about you? I'm in the middle of a book by a historian named Orlando Figgis about the history of the Russian Revolution called A People's Tragedy. And I can tell you one thing, it's much more tragic than this play. (laughs) Uh, It is a very dark portrait. It is pretty harrowing, but it's a very well-written and expansive work. Uh, that I, I don't know if I would recommend it to anyone who's not actively interested in the Russian Revolution, but uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. Sounds great. And that's our show. Next time, we bring the Wars of the Roses to their epic conclusion with Richard III. Thanks, as always, for listening to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.